This is a Federal News Network podcast. Agencies with big campuses often have parking that's either not enough or people have long hikes from distant spaces. That's certainly the case at the National Security Agency's big headquarters campus at Fort Meade, Maryland. For decades, it's been a source of angst for employees. The Office of Inspector General took a look at the parking situation and how it's managed. IG Robert Storch joins me now with details. Mr. Storch, it's always good to have you on. It's always great to be on, Tom. Appreciate the interest in our work. And let's talk about parking at the NSA. When you say NSA Washington in the report, that means pretty much Fort Meade, correct? Correct. We were looking at the NSA facilities at Fort Meade, and it's a place where uh, there have been concerns expressed about parking, frankly, for decades. And then we uh, focused in on a number of initiatives, one of which was the construction and then destruction of a parking garage that had to be destroyed without ever being used. But in general, there are more parking requirements than there are parking spaces. Is that a good way to put it? Well, there have been a number of concerns expressed about parking over the years. One does relate to lack of spaces, although we're talking about a number of different facilities at Fort Meade, and so there are a, a total number of spaces that may be adequate, but then you look at the distribution of spaces and where they are and whether they're conveniently located to the facilities where people work. And then another concern that has been expressed over the years really goes more to the equity issue, and there's certain um, groups seniors, executives, that sort of thing, that may have one type of parking and and whether there's abuse of that and and fairness in parking allocation. Okay, we'll talk about all of those issues. We should point out Fort Meade is a self-enclosed, very large piece of property. There's no metro there. There might be buses. But if you get to the front gate, you could have a long, long drive to the specific office or building that you are actually going to enter, correct? Right, that's correct. And that's one of the things we do talk about in the report is while the agency may be meeting the overall parking requirements for NSA Washington, the absence of convenient transportation makes it problematic when the parking is dispersed in the way it is. Yes, and uh, first you have to get through the front gate. And having been a visitor there a couple of times, that's no easy task either. But once you're through, it would be nice to, I guess, park close to where your building is. So let's talk about the distribution of spaces. If there are sufficient numbers, say 20,000 people a day and there's 20,000 spaces, the issue is that in the large concentrations of people, there are not adequate spaces. So it depends a little bit upon which location you're looking at. But for instance, we looked at what are considered the big four buildings, and there's actually a nice drawing in the report of this with some concentric circles that shows that the majority of those spaces are located in places that don't meet the standards for current new construction as to how close spaces are supposed to be to where people enter their workplace. Now, the agency does have shuttles and uses overflow lots to try to ameliorate that, But one of the big themes of the report is that it does not have overall goals, plans, and strategies to achieve them with regard to parking and transportation. So these initiatives are really done in more of an ad hoc way. Yeah, so if you're in the far north corner of WCPS Lot 1 and you're going into the big main building, you've got a heck of a hike. You may have a heck of a hike. That's true. All right. And primarily, you looked at the management of parking and the way that the people, the powers that be that run Fort Meade, look at this and deal with it. And it has not been an effective process, has it? 
Right. This has been an issue that uh, has been around here at NSAW for a long time. We looked back at newsletters, very interesting way to look at it, going back to 1954 and found that more than half of them referenced parking with the earliest back in 54. So literally for decades, this has been coming up. And when we looked at this, we found that, in fact, the agency does have a master plan. It does do what they call fiscal year development plans every five years. But that parking was not really prioritized. And in fact, we chose five initiatives, uh, parking and transportation initiatives to examine. And only one of those was even included in one of the fiscal year development plans. So really, while the agency, as I say, has made efforts through overflow parking and shuttles, we found that it has not either designated a single organization to be responsible in this area or that it had not really gone through and strategic looked at the parking and transportation needs, tried to develop a plan and then strategies to achieve it. Because that location has been dynamic over the years. I think the Defense Information Systems Agency moved from somewhere else and parked right in there. And then you also mentioned in the report that a lot of people were cleared out of leased buildings and consolidated into government-owned on that site. I mean, the population's been growing, and so the traffic has been growing. Right. And one of the things we do talk about in the report are the additional stresses on parking here from potential growth, both because, as you say, of the move from lease to government-owned space and because of the elevation of U.S. Cyber Command, which may require more people and more parking as well. And so this has been a significant issue here and one that, of course, is of importance to the workforce as reflected in the newsletters I mentioned. We also quoted in the report from a number of internal blogs and social media that are available to personnel here and a number of instances where there's significant frustration, I think it's fair to say, uh, regarding the parking situation. We're speaking with Robert Storch. He's Inspector General of the National Security Agency. And there have been some sadly failed gambits. And you mentioned a modular parking structure that was built and demolished. What happened there? Yeah, so back in 2014, the agency identified a uh, proprietary modular parking structure, and it's something that had not been built in the United States before. Basically, it didn't require a foundation. It would go on top of the asphalt, and for your listeners who may be interested, we actually have pictures in our report of the patent owner's rendering of what it would look like and then what was actually constructed here at Fort Meade, and it was supposed to add... 150 to 250 spaces as constructed, it ended up that it only added 87 spaces and the cost per space went up from 25,000 to 34,000 each. And so they constructed this, but then what followed was a period of about a year of testing, testing by internal firms selected by the contractor and then testing by three independent firms that address safety concerns that had been expressed. Ultimately, uh, all three of the independent uh, reviews, which themselves cost about $120,000, found significant concerns and ultimately determined that the structure, at least absent more testing, uh, could not be determined safe. Uh, one, one of the architectural firms recommended, and this is a quote, that the structure remain closed to personnel until it is verified as meeting all code requirements specified in the contract. Failure to resolve the deficiencies and identified issues 
prior to occupancy could result in structural collapse and loss of life. So faced with that, the uh, agency ultimately determined to demolish the structure. It went ahead and paid in full because it determined that having to go through and fight and potential legal fees would be even greater. And then it paid another $500,000 to actually demolish the structure as well. So we ended up determining that all of that, totaling $3.6 million, ended up being wasted. You know, a significant amount of money, maybe not huge in the context of some budgets, but on the other hand, we found it to be reflective of some of the lack of internal controls and processes to identify and address these issues to uh, assess risk and either accept it or mitigate it. Yeah, I wonder if any of those things have been built and are operating anywhere else. We did not identify the specific contractor involved, but we do say in the report that it had not been built anywhere in the United States. Oh, great. Probably in Afghanistan, but that's a different inspector general. And to the uh, Key to Park program, which was, I guess, supposed to have lights or something to tell people where they could find the space, that was, again, not a gigantic expenditure, but must be frustrating because it doesn't work. Right. Yeah, that's one of the five initiatives that we looked at in which we found there were significant management control deficiencies. That one, as you say, was one of these Parker Space counter systems. You may have seen them at airports or the like. This one was a little different, all designed to help people locate open spaces. Um, As opposed to having sensors in each space, the way this one was designed is it would have sensors or, or mechanisms to detect traffic going in and leaving. And there were questions raised about the accuracy of that. There was some testing, which actually did pretty well, but there were other technical problems that arose over time. And ultimately, it was dismantled in 20 last year as part of other construction. So that's one initiative where there were a number of issues really throughout, and ultimately it was dismantled. And they tried bicycles to be available for people to get from point A to point B within the campus? They did. And in fact, they do. That's one that actually is still operating of the uh, initiatives that we examined. That is operating. But as a result of of that, we looked at the effectiveness and had a number of concerns. We looked at the cost that was being spent on these bicycles. And the idea is people can use these to go from building um, to building. And we found that the cost of the bicycles went up by almost three quarters, by 74 percent from 2016 when it started to 2019. And the agency continued to buy bikes, even though, as when you looked at the number of new users, the cost per user went up from $608 per user to over $1,000 to $1,019. So the costs were going up significantly. We actually went out and our folks visited the racks over a period of a week to see how much traffic these bikes got, how much they were being used. And we found that 17% of them didn't move at all and 14% move less than uh, three times. So almost a third of them moving uh, less than three times in total. Additionally, we found that most of the movement that did occur was during the sort of rush hour periods at the beginning and the ends of the day, which suggested to us that the bikes being used more to address the issue we talked about at the outset about some of the distances that folks have to walk in from parking as opposed to being used for the intended purpose of going from building to building. One additional thing we found, which we thought was interesting, was that there have been a total of 140 of these bikes bought in this program, 
And of those, 50 of those were in storage, and we inquired about that, and they were in storage because they have tires that go flat. More recent bikes have been bought with uh, no flat tires. Um, and the agency told us that it may move these bikes uh, out to the field, but as we say in the report, it really was unclear to us why they had been put in storage as opposed to simply buying no flat tires or just reinflating the tires. <laughs> yeah, golly, the things you don't think about. But overall, you know, this report mentions in several occasions that the morale and that this is something that affects employee morale and it's extremely frustrating for employees and as you mentioned has been for you know 60 years they've been complaining about it so that gets to the issue of the equity of who can park where and there are reserve spaces maybe in abundance did you find in the report that we released, we don't go through and identify the numbers there, but we do identify that there were concerns expressed by people regarding access to spaces. And one of the things that we recommended to the agency was that it do a study and, in fact, include in that a workforce survey so that it can help to address those issues and identify strategies that help to ameliorate those concerns in the future. So other than the director, maybe nobody should have a reserve space. Well, I wouldn't say that. And, and, and again, that's not something we get into in the report regarding who exactly has access to what spaces. But one of the concerns that is expressed is whether there's abuse of reserve spaces. So, you know, whatever the purpose is, whether they're for leadership, whether they're for medical, you know, what they're for is whether those spaces are being used properly or not. And that's something that we suggest the agency uh, look into. And your main recommendation is this has got to rise in terms of management's concern and having an organized approach to it, correct? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that we say on a number of occasions in the report is that we found that the agency had not sufficiently prioritized parking and transportation, it, you know, at one point calling it a, a, a nice to have, you know, things like that, at least one of the individuals we spoke with. And, and this is something that really matters to people, right? And not just here, I think, across the federal workforce. And so one of the things we found was that they had not sufficiently prioritized this. And that, as I mentioned, the sources that we examined uh, supported that. So, so that's why we thought it was really important in our recommendation that the agency develop a comprehensive strategy that it include the workforce and survey to gather information so that it's able to take that into account. And by the way, are you able to park reasonably close to your office on a normal day? Yes, Tom. Fortunately, I am. But as, as our report found, there are significant concerns among the workforce that, that many people do not have convenient parking, and hopefully our report will help the agency to address that. Robert Storch is Inspector General of the National Security Agency. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. Thank you for your interest. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. And during his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, 
Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. 
you're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, DC, I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.